And this is our final week of Advent. This is our uh, love week. <laughs> I forgot to change my title slide, though. So ignore that. That's last week. Um, but uh, we've been going through the book of Philippians. As I've talked about, uh, two of our lectionary passages this year were from Philippians. And as I was studying those out, I just fell in love with the book all over again, especially as kind of an Advent study. It's kind of moved nicely, four chapters, four weeks of Advent. It's been kind of a neat little um, kind of survey type study, not too deep, but just kind of scanning it and seeing what each of these chapters might have to say about each of our themed weeks through Advent. And it's, it's been good. The first week we did hope, which is kind of this interesting, ironic tension that Paul talks about hope in chapter one from a prison cell where he has no idea um, what the outcome is going to be. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He doesn't know if he'll be released to continue to minister or if that's where he'll finish out his days. And from that place, he talks about hope, which we talked about um, is indicative of hope, that hope is always a tension. If you're hoping for something, it means you don't have it yet. And so hope always comes with the tension of, of if I put forth my hope, what if I don't get it? And so second thing we talked about, hope being a gamble, that it's always a gamble to hope. It's always a risk. And then the last thing, that hope is always communal, that when we share our hope, it just like amps it up. When we've got this kind of quiet inner hope, it's just this kind of thing that sits in there. But the second we share it with somebody else, like Paul does, Paul says in chapter one, I, I earnestly believe I'm going to be released to see you again. It just like, it, you know that that just cranks up the hope. Once you speak that out in, to some other human being, it, it just really turns it up. And so then the next week we got into peace. And Paul leads off chapter 2 talking about, I, I, would, I wish that you all had one mind and, and one heart. And he talks about this unity thing, which we took that and we talked about peace. And we talked about how in order to have unity, uh, it can get confusing to know who do I unify with. There's so many ideas and so many things. And who do, I, who do I align with and whose theology is close enough that I can say that's exactly what I believe. And we came to the conclusion that doesn't exist. The only way we ever find true unity is if we all follow Jesus and we follow after Jesus and we drop the in out language and we talk near far language instead that that we're interested in other people orienting themselves toward Jesus and they might believe different they might think different they might do things different, they might worship different but if we are aligning ourselves toward Jesus in a cruciocentric lifestyle where the cross is at the center of everything we do the closer we get to Jesus and the closer they get to Jesus the closer we also get to them and true unity only happens when we're aligned toward Christ himself in the center. And then last week we talked about joy and we kind of just walked down this thing where Paul first talks about resisting the things that can steal our joy. Um, And we talked about how in the holiday season we have a tendency to engage in debates and arguments and things that are meaningless. Merry Christmas or happy holidays. Like I've seen people get veins popping in their forehead because they're, they're angry that somebody wrote happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And And if there's something like that that's going to steal your joy, I just suggest staying away from it. Those are fights just not worth fighting. And so uh, then we talked about so not only resisting this kind of outward pressure that steals our joy, but letting go of some of the inward pressure that smothers our joy. The the list, Paul talks about, you know, I was was a, a son of Abraham and a Benjaminite and I was a Pharisee and he has this inner list that was that was kind of his pedigree and this is who I am and and, it, and it, those things get heavy when we start to identify ourselves by the things we do, and uh, that can get heavy. And he says, I've counted it all as garbage for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. And so we talked about the second way to have joy is to let go of the list and just focus on Christ, to, 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 to let, drop that weight of performance 
and just love Jesus, and, and you find your joy there. And then the last one, which was the hardest one, was having the ability to see through all the junk to, to Christ. And Paul says, you know, whether I live or die, I want to see the power of God and the power of Christ's resurrection in me. And he, and he had taken his eyes off the result. It wasn't, if I'm released, then I'll be joyful. It's whether I live or die. As long as I see the power of Christ in me, I'll be joyful. And that's our thing. Is, and we talked about those moments when your life is full and you've got all this stuff and you've got all this craziness and all of a sudden you get that call, such and such had a heart attack or such and such was in a wreck. It's amazing how fast you can see through all the things that are meaningless, all the things that are, that are just frivolous and, and your life suddenly in a moment boils down to just what's important. And I, I think Paul being in prison had kind of a unique uh, perspective on the subject because, uh, you know, he was probably sitting there thinking all of the debates I've had, all the theology I've wrestled over, you know, it comes down to Christ. At, at this stage of my life, whether I live or die, I just want to see Christ in me. And so uh, that brings us to week four, which is chapter four of Philippians we're going to go through. Um, and Paul starts this uh, fourth letter of the chapter uh, this way. Did I get this turned on? Yeah. Um, he says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. So Paul kicks off chapter four with this kind of grand declaration of love. I love you and I long to see you, my dear friends. And we've been tracking from the beginning of this book how kind of um, emotional and personal this book is. Uh, And this chapter is the same way. Paul's going to dive into dealing with kind of a personal spat that was going on in the church, um, even naming names. Um, And it even goes to the actual nitty-gritty of the thank you for the gift they had sent him. That's why he wrote this letter. It's kind of a extended thank you note. They had sent um, uh, a care package to him in prison. We talked about how in prison back then, the state didn't feed you and take care of you. They just arrested you. They had no um, responsibility to care for you. Your, your loved ones and people who cared for you had to send you stuff for you to survive. And so they were sending him uh, supplies, uh, either money or, or some kind of care package in prison for him to survive. And this is his thank you card um, that he sends back. And that's what kind of makes this book so rich and beautiful is this is not a theological treatise. This is not Paul sitting down to write theology intentionally. Um, this, is, this is him uh, without his theologian's hat on. Um, and granted, the Holy Spirit's at work here, but this is Paul writing a personal letter. Um, and I think this is powerful because I think in our lives, um, we kind of follow the same dynamic. Although I love to study and I love to stand up here uh, and talk every week, um, and I do think there's something powerful when we come around a common table and a common teaching um, that's formative for us as a people. But I think most of us agree that the, the really deep changes in our life happen face-to-face with other people. They happen uh, in, our, in our everyday lives as we talk about spiritual things and we talk about life, we talk about God together um, over coffee or wine or chips and salsa or whatever. That, that seems to be when God does the deepest work. And I think there's something powerful to me about Paul being the same Paul, whether he's writing a theological treatise like Ephesians or whether he's writing something deeply personal uh, like Philippians, that, that you get the same Paul. You get the, you know, and this tells me if Paul was sitting down to have chips and salsa with somebody, um, this is probably how he would talk. This is probably the stuff he would talk about. He would probably talk about God and, and the, the nature of Christ and salvation and these would be the things that would be in this conversation. I doubt he knew 
this was going to be a big theological piece. I think he was just trying to tell these guys, I love you. Thank you so much for the package. And, you know, a couple things that concern me real quick and blah, blah. This would be, if you just sat down and had a texting conversation with Paul, this is probably what you'd get. And I think it's, it's important to know that, that Paul was the same guy, um, whether he was being personal or theological. So this book becomes a beautiful tangle um, of a personal relationship and, and also this incredible kind of theological richness, um, which turns out to kind of guide this chapter of love because I think love is kind of the same way. I think love is, you know, there's no greater theme in the scripture. It kind of undergirds the entire biblical narrative, and yet it's as personal and, uh, and practical to us as being the source of countless and endless country songs. Like it's, love is, is everything that is personal, and it's everything that's deep and rich and theological. And so I think this book speaks to it well. Um, in fact, I, I, I was, as I was thinking on the concept of love and how, uh, how kind of deep it can go, but also how natural and shallow it goes, you know, um, I thought about how quick we say I love you, you know, to somebody. Have you ever accidentally said I love you to the wrong person when you hang up on the phone? Have you ever done that? I've been talking to somebody, all right, I love you. Are you still there? I don't know what happened right there. I, that just, yeah. I had a, one of my best friends, uh, he actually passed away in a car, car accident a while ago, Giuseppe, told everybody he loved him. He just, he made sure you knew that he loved you all the time. And him and his brother were in our house and they were arguing when they walked in the door one day. And, and Nino, his brother, was saying, um, if you say it too much, it loses its value. I was like, what are you talking about? And it was like, oh, Giuseppe's saying I love you to everybody. And Giuseppe was like, I want people to know. What if they don't know? And they're just bickering back and forth. And Nino finally goes, you told the bank teller I love you. And it goes quiet for a second. It goes quiet for a second. Giuseppe goes, she's a really good bank teller. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so we've got this, this word that we, we throw around like it's almost meaningless, and yet it is also... Maybe the deepest well in Scripture is this idea of love. And so um, so kind of like last week with joy, we started on the shallow and got deeper. We're going to kind of move uh, the same way this week. And we're going to actually kick off the whole thing um, talking about the second law of thermodynamics, um, or more specifically entropy. We'll get there. Paul talks, Paul writes this. He says, now I appeal to Europa, uh, <laughs> Eodia and Syntyche, Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, uh, my true partner, to help these two women. For they work hard with me, worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. So the first love fact um, we need to grasp is that love, at least human love, at it, even at its very best, follows the law of entropy. Um, specifically the, uh, the law of entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics is that energy always moves from the hotter thing to the colder thing. That, that's the energy, the way energy moves is from hotter to colder. It's actually what air conditioning is based on. It feels like air conditioning is blowing cold air into your house. That's not actually what it's doing. It's taking your warm air, blowing it over this substance called Freon, which is hotter that the the heat in your air moves into the freon and turns cold as it comes through it carries it out and then it dumps the heat outside 
That's basically the general. It's not pulling any cold air from anywhere. It's actually pulling the heat out of your existing air. It's, it's, it's the second law of thermodynamics that heat always moves from hotter to colder. Energy always moves from hotter to colder. And I think that um, love works the same way. I think most of us know that relationships, if left completely unattended, don't get hotter and deeper. They, they get colder. They, they fall apart. I, our, I think relationships work on the law of entropy. If, if not tended to and cared for, and if we don't put energy into them, they, they fall apart. They, they get colder. They corrode. Left alone, your yard never grows more beautiful and more trimmed. Um, things left alone rust or corrode or deteriorate. Um, if I leave myself completely alone, I don't just grow a six-pack. I've been testing that one. It doesn't, it doesn't ever um, go that way. The laundry does not fold itself. Relationships are ruled by entropy. The, the more generic definition of entropy that's not thermodynamics is, is that things tend to move from order to chaos. Things tend to move from better to worse. They just, things fall apart. Things don't, you can't put a rusted car out and watch it get cleaner and, and newer. That's not how things work. Things follow entropy and our, and our love does the same thing. So look at what Paul says here. He says, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers. Worked, past tense. These were co-workers, and it, and it seems like they were close. And the use of the past tense here makes it seem like maybe they're no longer so. And Paul's advice to them is to fight the entropy. He even calls in someone else to help. He says, settle your disagreement. So the first thing is that we see love can't be left alone. It can't be put on autopilot. It can't be stuck on cruise control. It it won't move like that. It will fall apart if we don't tend to it. We'll grow from hotter uh, and deeper uh, to cooler and more shallow. But it also won't stay static. That's the worst part. We can't just, it won't stay put either. Not only will it not grow deeper and hotter, it won't even stay where it's at. It will always move toward chaos. It will always fall farther apart if you don't put more energy into it. The second thing we've got to pick up from here is that Paul doesn't just say, oh, well, some people don't just don't get along, you know. These two people, you know, try to keep them apart. Some people just can't see eye to eye. He doesn't do that. To him, it's not okay for them to stay this way. It's not okay to, to stay enemies. He, he calls on them to make it better. He calls on them to, to, to move in the other direction, to fight the entropy. That's our second thing. We're called to fight the entropy of love. I've counseled a lot of married couples, and, and when they're completely at each other's throat and they're ready to quit, you know, and they're, they're ready to walk away, which is usually the first time they step into a counseling office, we're done, we're here, what do you want to talk to us about? Um, is that uh, they always look at me and they're like, you know, when I tell them that, you know, I remind them of their baptism and I'm like, we, we don't get divorced. That's not what we do. And like, so I'm just supposed to live miserable all my life just to keep from getting divorced. And I always say the same thing. Absolutely not. You are absolutely not supposed to be miserable. God didn't 
didn't forbid divorce so that you could just live miserable. He expects you to work at your marriage and make it better. It's never okay for us to just stop and let it fall apart. That's never what we're called to. We're called to make it better. We're called to fight the entropy. He just grabs two people who are having a dispute in this church, and in the middle of this letter of such theological richness, he's like, hey, settle that. Fix it. Don't let it just sit there. Make this better. You know, move in the right direction. He calls them to fix it. It's not okay for Eodia and Sanctiki to be at odds. That's just not what we do. We don't get to just stay angry. We're not allowed to. We don't get to embrace unforgiveness. We, we don't get to leave our conflicts unrepaired, which begs the question, why? Why not? Why, why do we have to work this hard? And I love that Paul answers it, and he does it this way. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreements. Because you belong to the Lord. We live in kind of a hyper-rational culture a lot of times, which is ironic because we're anything but. But we need to know the why of everything. And, and, we, and what we really mean by that is we want science to confirm it so that we can believe what God said. Like, once you prove to me that it works, and blah, 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 then I'll know that God was right and, and whatnot. But this answer doesn't work for people anymore. But in my opinion, this is the true answer to most of our why questions. Is because you belong to the Lord. Why give? Because you belong to the Lord. Why worship? Because you belong to the Lord. We want them to go deeper. We want them to tell us because it's good for your soul. And when you do this, blah, blah, blah. No, because you belong to the Lord. That's the real reason. Why work hard and honest? Because you belong to the Lord. Why take care of our planet? Because you belong to the Lord. But to the Philippians, I think there would have been even a deeper understanding. Uh, Philippi was actually a Roman colony. Um, as I was studying Philippi to kind of prep for this a little bit, I learned quite a bit about the, um, the city itself. When Octavius, uh, who became Caesar Augustus, ended the, the kind of civil war in Rome that had started with Julius to kind of, to kind of collapse the Roman Republic and brought in the Roman Empire, um, they said he ushered in what they called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Um, when he put all that down and, and he kind of ended this huge, massive civil war that had been going on for years, uh, he suddenly had a whole bunch of soldiers on his hands and nothing to do with them. And he didn't want legions of violent men flooding into Rome. And so the way he fixed it was west in Greece, um, he gave land to all of these soldiers. And, and he would kind of plant these soldiers and their families, if they had them, in these cities that were already kind of populated throughout Greece. And Philippi was one of those. Philippi was almost 100% um, colonized by Roman soldiers. And so the, the Roman soldiers are now considered Philippians, but they're also Roman citizens. And it kind of creates this interesting dual um, citizenship thing uh, where you now have kind of the native Philippians who would have been the original Greeks, the people who lived there originally. You've got these Romans who are occupying or, you know, living here as Roman colonists, sort of. Um, and then you also now have Paul and this kind of new kingdom that had come in. And you kind of have this interesting clashing of kingdoms. But this, this understanding of a, of a colonial Roman in the Roman Empire um, was interesting because you didn't live in Rome, and that was kind of on purpose. So, it, so you're 
your goal, your purpose was to spread and advance the Roman culture and the Roman way in this city that you're now living in. So, so you would, uh, you know, if you were a Roman in, in Philippi and you were doing things that were more like the, the kind of native people, someone would call you out by saying, you are a Roman. You're a Roman citizen. Act like it. Like they would, they would expect you to act like your home culture. But it also was interesting because you weren't, you know, your goal as a Roman colonist in Philippi would have never been, you know, I can't wait to get home. Like you're, you're not, your whole purpose is to be here and not just be here, but to be Roman here and to advance the Roman way and the Roman culture here. And so, and the, the beauty of it was you also um, got to kind of count on, you know, Roman support, Roman help, Roman finances if you got in trouble if something happened and the natives got restless yeah the roman legions would come in and back you um you know then and the wealth of rome and and everything that rome had to offer would come in and support you but your job was to to be roman away from rome uh and i think that's that's interesting because i think it sounds a little bit like thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven i i think a lot of what we talk about in kingdom language that we get kind of confusing. Is it here? Is it there? Is it now? Is it in the future? Like, uh, I think we could almost substitute the word colony, that we're a, we're a colony of heaven on earth. And our, our goal while we're living here isn't to be there. It's to advance the heavenly kingdom here that, you know, help me advance to, to be a colonist in this world, advancing our culture and our ways and our mores here. And so when Paul says, you know, hey, you can't act like that. You belong to the Lord. It's like somebody saying, hey, you can't do that. You're a Roman citizen. Act like a Roman citizen. It, that's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's saying, hey, in, in uh, actually in uh, chapter 3, verse 20, uh, right at the end of chapter 3, he says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eager, eagerly waiting uh, for him to return as our Savior. We're waiting for him over there to return over here. Our goal isn't to get over there. Our goal is to bring over there over here. He's like, we're citizens of heaven over there, anxiously awaiting, the advent waiting for him to come over here. That's the, that's the dream is, God, advance your kingdom here. Push your culture here. Push your mores here. That's why we're here. We're not just here to, to hunker and wait until we can finally go be in heaven. That's never the goal. We're here to advance a kingdom. We're here to advance a way of life. And so when he tells them, uh, because you belong to the Lord, settle this disagreement, this is more than just a generic phrase. He's saying, because this is what we do. This is what citizens of heaven do. Stop acting like a native. Act like a citizen of heaven. That's what we do. This is what our people are like. This is how you would live back home. Live that way here is what he's saying. So the answer to the why, why love, why work so hard to keep love alive, why fight the entropy is because we're citizens of heaven. That's why. That's why we're not allowed to just let our marriages crumble. We're not allowed to let our friendships crumble. We're not allowed to let our relationship with our kids crumble because we're citizens of heaven and we're called to better. We're called to more. So when entropy erodes our love, what we do is fight. We fight it. Why we do it is because that's our culture. That's, what, that's who we are. We're the people of God. 
That's what the people of God do. And the how, how we do it, Paul says this. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. I'm going to say this like it's simple, um, but please know that this is one of the hardest things we'll ever do in kingdom life. And I by no means am claiming to be able to do it. I'm fully embracing my hypocrisy when I preach this. So please hear that. But the way we combat entropy that erodes love is by choosing what we think about. We choose what we think about. We choose what we focus on. If we choose to think about things that foster and fuel our love, then our love will grow. If we choose to think about things that pick at our love and tear it apart, then that's what will happen. And what I love is Paul doesn't tell us not to think bad thoughts, not to think impure thoughts, not to think, you know, wicked thoughts. Which brings us back to another principle of thermodynamics, which is that nature abhors a void. You can't have nothing. When you try to take something out, something has to come in to fill it. Nature abhors a vacuum. But uh, so the if I were to tell you whatever you do, don't think about a pink elephant. What's the first thing that pops into your mind? Obviously a, a pink elephant, right? You can't. You can't not think about something to not think about it. Like, it doesn't work that way. All we can do is fill our mind up so full with something else that there's no room left for the negative. We don't avoid painful, frustrating, hurtful, lonely feelings about somebody by dwelling on them. We choose to think, think the things that they do to help us, things they do to care for us, things they do have done to encourage us. And as we dwell on these things, it, it stirs up more. We fight the entropy between our ears first. That's where the, most of the battle with the entropy of love happens is, is in our minds. If we know somebody well enough to truly love them, to truly love them deeply, then we also know them well enough for them to drive us crazy. Anybody that you know well enough to love with all your heart you can also hate with all your heart. I honestly believe that because you know everything there is to know about them. You know all the little negative stuff about them. If you know them well enough to love them, you know all that stuff that makes you crazy. And you get to choose which one to think about. I can focus on the things about this person that I know are good and honorable and noble and just. Or, since I'm so close to them, I can think about all the mistakes they've made because I've been around for all of them. I can dwell on all the things they've done wrong. I can choose to dig into all those things and and hang on to them. We get to choose which them, the person that we're talking about, you get to choose which them to think about. So the second way we, uh, or to succeed in stopping the entropy, we have to choose what goes on in our mind. The next question would be, if we do stop it, how do we get it to grow? How do we get love to grow, not just to stay static? Because we can't stay static. We have to, if we're not growing our love and deepening our love, it will fall apart. It will entropy. And Paul says this. And now, oops, did it not go? Or did I go too far? No, I went too far. There we go. 
And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely uh, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have a chance to help me. Not that I ever was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me more than once, or sent me sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I'm generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. The love between Paul and the Philippian church was built on giving. Love is always about giving. Love is always built on giving. You can't understand Paul's uncharacteristic emotions in this book if you don't get the way the Philippians have always responded to Paul through giving. They've always given to him, and, and that's, what, that's what stirred up his love for them. Like he couldn't help but love them because they cared for him so deeply. And obviously love or giving goes way deeper than money, and it goes into our time and attention and compassion, but love always grows through giving, through giving of ourselves. And there's some good things to, to pick up in this. We're going to kind of work through them a little bit at a time, but uh, I'm going to try not to take too long. But he says, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned about me, but you didn't have a chance to help me. And notice how, how easily Paul kind of mixes up love and giving here. Almost like he's saying, I'm so glad you love me again. And then he kind of remembers, I mean, it's not that you didn't love me, it's that you didn't have a chance to give. Like he, in his mind, it's a, you can almost see how quickly he, he confuses the two. And I, I think that's powerful. I think you can confuse the two. I think that giving is, is so close to love that, you know, when someone stops giving, it's hard to feel that they love us. That, that, that love and giving are so intertwined that Paul even kind of mixes them up here. I'm so glad that you were able to care for me again. And almost as if the Philippians hadn't been caring for him before they gave. Um, and he knows that's not true, but that's what it feels like sometimes. Like it's hard to feel love when there's no giving. And he says, not that I ever have need, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live with almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in this present difficulty. I think this is funny. I've always kind of made fun of this passage. Um, and it makes me feel like maybe I wouldn't have liked Paul a whole lot as a person. But 
Um, I love how he thanks them. And he was like, I mean, it's not like I needed it or anything. Like, <laughs> have you ever given to somebody like that? Oh, I mean, I guess I can maybe use it, whatever. You know, and you're like, it's, it's just interesting how quick he, he kind of turns that. But I, I think we tend, to, we tend to use this passage to focus mostly on Paul's contentment. We talk about how content Paul was, and you can definitely extrapolate that from the passage. But I think it's interesting um, for tonight's purposes to look at it from the Philippians side. Um, you know, when, when, you, when you round up a gift, you're, you're not a wealthy church, and you round up a gift and you give it to somebody, and his response is, I mean, it's not like I need it, but I'll take it. Thank you anyway. And, you know, that you could take that personally. Um, and I think what I take from this is that um, the giving and the gratitude don't have to be correlated. That we, we don't give mathematically. We, we don't give love because of the response we'll get. We don't give love because, you know, we expect a big thank you or a big grand gesture in return. That we give love whether we get a thank you or not. We get love whether we get love in return or not. We give love, you know, whether it's reciprocated or not. Like, they gave to Paul. They didn't need a thank you. They didn't need, you know, they gave to Paul because they loved Paul. Not because, you know, and they, they, they needed this big grand thank you doesn't matter if the other person says, I didn't really need it. That's not why you gave it. You gave it out of love. You gave it to them out of love. The giving is good for you, whether they like it or not, whether they need it or not. That doesn't mean that the love doesn't have an effect or the giving doesn't have an effect. Paul says, as you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. This is kind of a fun psych, or psych, psych study because um, it's interesting how, Paul, or how the Philippians' giving sparks Paul's memory of previous giving. Like our tendency when we're giving and it's not being reciprocated is to withhold any more giving. Like I gave and gave and gave and I didn't get anything in return. I'm done giving. And what happens here is as the Philippians give to Paul, it brings to mind the other times they've given to Paul. He's thinking, man, you gave me back here and you gave to me. and You're always taking care of me. And I think in our relationships it's the same way. When we, when we give and, and sometimes it's not reciprocated immediately or, or, or we, we don't get back what we were hoping to get back, our tendency can be to, that's it, I tried, I'm not giving anymore. And love doesn't work that way. We just, when we give and it's not reciprocated, we, we give again and we give again. And, and sooner or later, they're like, man, you are always given to me. Like, you're always in it. And it stirs up their memories and stirs up their love and stirs up their emotions because you're, you're so giving. And that's what happens here when they, when they give to Paul. He remembers every other time they've given. He starts to recognize the pattern of giving in them, and, and he responds to it um, lovingly. Then Paul says this, I don't say this because I want a gift from you, but rather I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. This is one of the biggest mysteries in the universe, in my opinion. Um, but the way you get your needs met is by meeting someone else's needs. It just always worked that way. Zig Ziglar had a great way to say it. He said, if you want to become successful, help other people succeed. Like the way you become successful is by helping others to succeed. Like when you give, so the Philippians are giving to Paul, and Paul's response is, I can't wait to see the reward God is going to give you for what you just did. Like 
He knows that you can't. The, the, and this is abused all the time. And I almost hate to preach it because of the way it's abused. But it's a reality. You can't outgive God. You can't. And, even, and if you don't believe me, I dare you to test it. And, and, just, and just with a clear heart, with a good heart, do something amazing um, and, and watch and see. And, and God returns it. And, and you're like, ah, that's not why I did it. This was a giving, not an investment. I don't want to. Like, you give more, and God just rains more in. The more you try to outgive him, the more he outgives you. And as, as everybody is, as the Philippians are, as a poor church we talked about, they didn't have much resource, and they rounded up. Paul's greatest excitement of giving this gift is knowing the reward it's going to pour in on this church because he knows the nature of God, and he knows if they were able to put together this um, in, in their poverty that God is just going to rain blessings on them. So Paul says what every preacher has said since. He says, I don't ask for your money because I want your money. I ask for your money because I want you to experience the rewards of giving. That's what he's saying. So when I say that, I'm just quoting Paul. <laughs> Verse 18, at the Moment, I have all that I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with your uh, Epaphroditus. They are sweet-smelling sacrifice. It's acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supplies, supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. This is probably my favorite part of this passage because Paul says, your gift was a sacrifice to God. Not Paul, but to God. He said, your gift is a sacrifice you gave to God, a sweet-smelling sacrifice. And then he turns around and says that, that God, the same God that supplies all my needs, is going to take care of you. So what's interesting is he doesn't give the Philippians credit for the gift either. He's like, God supplies all of my needs. You gave an offering to God, and God took care of my needs which is interesting because I think we have a tendency sometimes when we pray to think that God's just going to drop blessings from the sky and they're you know, just going to fall on us maybe. But God uses his people to answer prayers like this. And we are the hands and feet of God. When God speaks to us to help somebody or to, to, to give something to somebody, that's, they receive it like God took. I don't know if you've ever had somebody swoop into your life and give you something at just the right moment, that's God. And, and God spoke to their hearts, hey, I feel like I'm supposed to give this to you. And yeah, they're giving, but in their hearts, if God told them to give it, they're giving it to God. Even though they're giving it to you, they're like, okay, God, I'm obedient it to you. I'm giving this to you. And they put it in someone else's hands, and that person is receiving it from God. Like That's what being the body means. It, that it's, it's what I call it... Uh, incarnational ecclesiology living as the body of Christ it's, it's being the incarnate Christ to one another that we, we supply each other's needs on behalf of God he uses us to do it and, and, and we're giving to God and we're receiving from God all at the same time that, that Paul in this passage thanks God and receives from God the Philippians gifts I mean of course he thanks them and he's glad they gave it but he says God is the one who supplies all my needs. Because he knew if the Philippians couldn't put it together, it'd come from somewhere else. Because ultimately it's from God. But at the same time, he knew that the Philippians were giving to God because God could offer the Philippians a way greater reward than Paul could. 
And so it's interesting as we give the part that God plays in all that. So first the Philippians gave to God, and this is huge. And then Paul received from God. We are the primary way God meets the needs of his people. It's through us. So how do we respond to all this? And let's bring it back to Advent. Because we don't love for no reason. We love because we're made in the image of a God who is love. We love because we are loved. The biblical narrative is about God's love. It's about him combating the entropy and staying active in humanity even when humanity had failed. It's about him continuing to work in humanity. It's about God constantly focusing on the love he has for his people. In the most ancient writings, even when he would tell people, you know, what they had done wrong and he would rebuke them and he would tell them how he was going to judge them, he always laced it and turned it into his love and how he's going to restore them and how he's going to, he, he chose, even as he was rebuking them, he chose to think about and dwell on the, his love for them. And most of all, it's about a God who gives. And this is what Advent's about. This is what Christmas is about. It's about a love that isn't just a feeling. It's about a love that's more than words. It's more than just saying, I love you. It's about giving. Christmas is about a God who loved us so much that he gave the ultimate gift. Not because we deserve it. Not because we can reciprocate. Not because he might receive anything in return. It's a love that he gives just because that's what you do with love. You give it. In fact, I'd go so far to say that maybe it's not even love until you give it. So as we go to the table and sing this final song, here's how I would love for us to respond. First, as you take the bread and cup, understand that you're receiving the greatest gift of love ever given, the broken body and spilled blood of the greatest lover. Given without expectation of anything in return, just given for you. And with a gift, you have two options. You can receive it or not receive it. That's all you can do. You can't earn it. It's already been given. It's silly to earn something that's already been given. You can either receive it or not receive it. Those are your two choices. So as you take the bread and cup tonight, I would ask you to receive the love of God into your heart and your life. If you've never received Jesus before, do it tonight. And if you received Jesus years ago, do it again tonight. This is a season for giving. So after you receive the love of God in Christ Jesus at the table, I would ask you to make a plan for this week. Think of someone that you've been withholding love from. Think of your Eodia or Syncticae. Maybe you have a situation where you used to be close. You used to be connected. You used to be passionate. But entropy is worn away at that. Determine this week to give love, just to give it. Make a phone call. Send a note. Buy a small gift. Do something nice. Make love. Tell my wife I said that.
kidding. One person, one act of love this week. Do it. Combat the entropy. Think of that person. As we're taking communion, as we're singing this last song, let God bring that person to mind and commit to do it.